Welcome to episode 71 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Joshua Sawyer, a medical student at the Alabama College of Osteopathic Medicine and the Southern Regional Representative for the AAEM RSA Medical Student Council, speaks with Dr. Adam Kessler, an associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine and Anesthesiology Critical Care at the University of Alabama Birmingham, where he developed an EDICU and an emergency critical care consult service. Today, Mr. Sawyer and Dr. Kessler discuss the field of critical care in emergency medicine. Hello and welcome. My name is uh, Joshua Sawyer. I'm a fourth-year medical student and Southern representative to the AAEM Med Student Council, also an officer in the United States Navy Medical Corps. The opinions and views stated in this podcast are not representative of the Navy or the Department of Defense. I'm here today with uh, Dr. Adam Kessler, who is a critical care fellowship-trained emergency medicine physician at the University of Alabama, Birmingham where he is faculty in their emergency medicine residency program. Uh, so Dr. Kessler, I'm really happy and excited to talk to you today. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. Great to be here. Thanks for asking me to come. Um, I'm originally from Chicago, born and raised, um, and went to uh, college at University of Illinois uh, in Champaign-Urbana. I got my degree in typical pre-med fashion uh, biology uh, with a minor in chemistry, and I attended uh, medical school at the Kansas City University of Medicine, which is an osteopathic school in Kansas City. Uh, after that, I did a one-year internal medicine internship at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, and then I followed that with an EM-IM combined residency in West Virginia at a community shop, which is actually recently closed. And that followed uh, with a one-year fellowship in critical care via anesthesia at UAB, and that's how I ended up here. Wow, that is quite a path, quite a journey. Yeah, it's Uh, uh, a little twisty-turny with some sob stories in between. So I'm sure we'll get to that. So a little more detailed, uh, how did you get to your position that you're in today? Yeah, so my path was somewhat untraditional in a few ways. Really, it, it come, my, my initial education, you know, I went right from college to med school to residency. So there was no big gap years. I didn't go and work on a fishing boat in Alaska or anything cool like that, which maybe I should have. But um, it was untraditional kind of in my residency training. So Sob story one, I didn't match my first time around. And so if anyone's out there listening who has gone through that, it's not the end of the world. It really, really sucks, but it's not the end of the world. So that's kind of how I got to doing an internal medicine preliminary year internship. My plan was going to, well, my initial plan was actually surgery as a pretty typical decision be with EM physicians early on is they like surgery, but they also like EM. So it's very frequently a toss up between those two if, if you ask a lot of EM providers. And for me, it was the same thing, but I really thought it was surgery for a while. Like I did an EM rotation in a god awful place and I was like, I don't want to do this. And so then I I really focused on the surgery. I got all my fourth year rotations in surgical. I did like plastics and uh, colorectal, you know, good places in Chicago because I thought I'm gonna I'm from Chicago. I'm gonna go to Chicago. I mean, I had this all planned out in my head as we all do, and life happens. So I didn't. So I, I I decided late to go back to do EM. So all my letters were not EM. Actually, most weren't. And uh, so I I just didn't have a strong application, so I didn't match. I I scrambled into this internal medicine one-year program uh, at Rush in Chicago, which in retrospect was maybe one of the best things that could have happened. And so after that, I went through the match again. And granted, I'm an osteopath, so there were two matches at that time. And the osteopathic match went one month before the allopathic match. Right. And in my naive brain, I thought, no, I want to do allopathic. I didn't have a 
great reason, I don't think. I think it was mostly just location. Um, so I for you know you had to forego the osteopathic match if you wanted to do the allopathic match because if you matched into a osteopathic program, that's where you went and you kind of got removed from the from the allopathic match, or at least that's how it worked in my head. So long story short, I didn't match again. So it does get better. So I, I ended up scrambling into an actually an EMIM residency. And I thought, you know what? It's actually no extra time because EM osteopathic residencies are all four years anyways. This was just another four years. I was going to get a lot of credit for my IM year. And you know what? Knowing more internal medicine is just going to make me a better ER doctor. I never planned on doing internal medicine practice. So I just thought it's going to make me a better ER doctor. And so I just did it. And um, I, I did it in a community shop. No fellowships, two residencies, EM and IM, and it was good and bad, good in the way that we didn't have fellows to come and do a lot of stuff that maybe needed to be done or other residencies like ortho residency. We had to do all our own joints, you know, reductions and those things like that. So we we got some different experiences than people at bigger academic places would get, but we also didn't get some of the things that academic centers would get. We weren't a big trauma center. We didn't do a lot of transplant or actually any transplants. We didn't do, we only did diagnostic casts, no PCI. So there were some good, some bad, but it also gave me the chance to kind of be a, maybe a bigger fish in a little or pond. I was able to be chief resident for the EM program and and then over my time, I decided that I wanted to do critical care, and uh, that's how I decided to do that after, you know, figuring out what I loved, and, and then I'm, you know, came here through the anesthesia program, and here you are. Here we are. I know uh, from a medical student uh, standpoint, it's refreshing to hear that kind of a story uh, because there does seem to be a lot of pressure um, to have, you know, the next decade of your life uh, pretty mapped out in, you know, these succinct steps. Yeah. And and it's nice to hear kind of that journey and how that evolved yeah. um, and, and how it eventually worked out and yeah. you're doing something you love. Yeah. What was the initial spark for you for critical care? For me, it was probably listening to Scott Weingart's EM Crit podcast and my responsibilities in residency. So the way it worked out in my residency was we took call. It used to be kind of a Q4 program, and then, then it went to a night float system. But when we were on call for internal medicine, we were on call for the whole hospital, including the ICU. So we did all the ICU admissions. We did all the internal medicine admissions. And so that meant I was in the ICU many nights for my call nights and that's just where I thrived and when in the ER that's who I naturally gravitated to was or were the critical care patients never a big trauma fan early on I liked the complicated medical patients where I really had to think about it I had to uh, use my you know procedural skills and so that's where my interest came. And I think what helped that a lot is my internal medicine background, where I kind of knew a little more in depth the next steps and some other things that maybe the straight EM residents weren't thinking about. Um, so that's kind of where, where it all started. And so, but, but, but the first spark was listening to, to Scott Weingart. I, and I kind of didn't re even realize it was a thing to do uh, critical care after emergency medicine. Um, I didn't even think you could, you would do both together. Um, so it really just opened my eyes to the possibility. And I listened to him a lot during residency. And so it just, it just sparked that interest. Yeah. I think, uh, I know for myself that, M. Crit and Scott Weingart were huge influences on me as a even as a flight nurse prior to med school, and I started listening to that in nursing school. Mm -hmm. And I think people like yourself and people uh, that have pursued this kind of—I don't know if atypical is the right word, but not as well-known path—have definitely been influential. So it's kind of cool to hear that 
that was your initial spark yeah. as well. Uh, yeah. To, he's to he's touched a lot of lives in terms of in terms of that uh, because he he was really the first voice on a large scale to bring this type of thing. I mean, he, he clearly not the first EM person to do critical care, but he was really the first to bring it. I think to light right. for you know residents and, and and students and stuff. So was it? What was it about his? I guess his vision that really. I really liked his mantra, I guess, of, of bringing upstairs care downstairs. To me, why would I wait to do something that I knew needed to be done just because I was sitting in an emergency room? It doesn't make sense. If you know they need something and you've got the time and the resources to do it, do it. It's only better for patient care. And that really stuck with me. And along with the fact that he's very charismatic and very entertaining to listen to, but really the ideals that he, you know, voiced with with bringing that that initial care to the patient in the ER was really what kind of made me more passionate about it. It sounds like viewing it you know, less as segmented departments and more as a continuum of care. Yeah, it's absolutely the case. And and really, for me, it just comes down to what's the best thing for the patient at that point. Right. So they're sitting in my ER. They need XYZ. I can do XYZ. If I'm just going to do XYZ, I'm not going to wait till they go upstairs. And sometimes that's several, several hours. So uh, it just it felt right to do those things just because it was the best thing for the patient. So we're kind of touching on it, but for those who uh, maybe are not familiar with the concept or not as familiar, what exactly is a emergency medicine critical care physician? Um, so it's pretty simple. It's a physician who's done training in emergency medicine and critical care. There's also some, you know, you can also do like a resuscitation fellowship. There's some places that do a one-year resuscitation fellowship that is you're 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 really focusing on ER or, or emergency department critical care as opposed to doing rotations upstairs in the ICU. You can't get boarded in critical care, but along but it, it's basically an ER EM physician who does advanced training in critical care. It's and it's it's that simple. And and what you decide to do with that, there's a wide range of things, but it 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 really just comes down to that. Right. And why? Why would I, we've heard why you pursued uh, critical care, but why would you say someone who's interested in this field or considering it, uh, why would an EM doc spend that extra time training and, and, and become uh, a critical care physician as well? Well, uh, I mean, it's really a personal choice, and it's two years of time. For me, it was actually one year, and I can get into that specifics those specifics later but it may not even be relevant anymore because of the single uh, pathway but it's really a personal choice some people always wanted to do critical care and they decided that em was a better path than i am some people really just want to do both um and so it's really the individual person what i have found is that I, of course, love both. But what I have found, it it's actually made my career a little more burnout-proof because after I do a stretch of a stretch in the emergency department, I'm ready to go on to the ICU and vice versa. And so each specialty by itself, which the listener should know, they both have very high rates of burnout. But when you break it up, I don't feel burnt out at all. I work a lot, but I don't feel burnt out. Other reasons to consider it are if when you're in the emergency department, if you always have that burning desire to know what happened next or what's the next step or wanting to have a little more continuity of care without having to worry about being in the clinic or any boring stuff like that, it's it kind of it allows you to have those things and still 
be somewhat more in in a, in a place that's kind of higher acuity, higher energy than like the medicine floor or the clinic. So it's it it allows you to have a few other. Uh, it, it, it's really what will satisfy you at the end of the day. If you have no desire or don't care at all what happens once they leave the emergency department, probably not for you. Right. Uh, but if you really want to know or you want to just dive just a little deeper while you're in the emergency room, you really have that desire to know the why as opposed to how can I just kind of, you know, you know do my EM duties, um, you know, it's definitely something to, to consider. When I was working as a, an emergency nurse, uh, I had a similar uh, experience. I was kind of getting burnt out mm-hmm. on just the day to day. You know, you show up and do kind of the same thing with mm-hmm. you know punctuated points of uh, chaos. Mm-hmm. But I found when I started doing critical care flight, the same thing. I felt like both fields kind of. I felt like what I did uh, with critical care flight made me better in the emergency department, and vice versa. Absolutely, uh, they the complement each other very well. Right, the two different mindsets seem to uh, mm-hmm. flow into each other. Um, along that line, uh, what do you, what specifically do you think a critical care trained EM physician brings to an emergency department and vice versa to the ICU? Um, so I'll start on the emergency side. Um, it, they, short answer is they can bring a lot, and it depends on what you decide to do. But one aspect is if you're at an academic center, education, of course, you have that extra training that you can educate the residents on shift in the didactics. Um, so that that's one thing. Also, you could also educate your fellow colleagues, the other attending physicians, about different protocols, um, bring different protocols down to the emergency department, um, newer ideas that maybe are being more or getting more light up in the ICU, et cetera. So, so, so that's a big thing. Uh, also, educating the nurses too. That's a big thing. You know, I I do more. I do certain procedures more than my EM colleagues, and so bringing those down into the emergency department, uh, I found has been helpful. Also, in terms of just working up a, a emergency patient, you can maybe anticipate some things that are going to be needed for the upstairs care. Uh, you can kind of see where they're probably going to go, what labs they may want early, and kind of get the ball rolling. And that, over time, can kind of, in little bits, help the patient's hospitalization overall, starting the right antibiotic or starting the right protocol for X or, or whatever it may be. Over time, those things can lead to shorter hospitalization, shorter ICU times, et cetera. On the flip side, being an EM doc up in the ICU is actually very helpful, especially when we have a crashing patient, because in my opinion, there's no better physician to have at the bedside than an emergency physician once everything's going to crap. Because we, this is, that's our everyday, it's actually less common to have a crashing patient in the ICU than down in the emergency room. So... It really allows you to be comfortable with those things that, and and not saying that other critical care trained physicians who do not do EM can't do those things, but that's really where we thrive. And I've found that our ability to multitask is probably a little better than some other uh, specialties who who can do critical care. And again, that's just because that's that's our everyday bread and butter. And also it brings a different perspective. So when you have, an, for example, let's say an internist who did critical care, you know, their background is internal medicine. They did clinic. So they're going to get a patient who comes, who, who's having, a, let's say, a symptom. And their thought process may be a little different than ours. Our thought process is rule out the most life-threatening thing first, and then we can worry about all the other stuff later. And so we may be a little more aggressive in terms of ruling out badness than or, or, or ruling out badness earlier uh, because we're going to kind of take it as or we're going to use that emergency training 
because that's our second nature. And so, so it really, it brings, it brings what I found, it brings a level of confidence to the ICU, especially with, you know, working with the ICU nurses and, and, and things of that nature. So it just brings a different mindset. And you're in a unique position of having both emergency and internal medicine training. Yeah. In terms of disposition, is there anything that emergency medicine physicians might think differently, the patient in the ICU, that you that you got from internal medicine? Or is it pretty much the same, you're dispositioning them to the floor? I don't think so. I may be a little more aggressive in when I'm ready to transfer someone out of, to, of the ICU right. or discharging someone from the ICU, but I can't say that for a fact. Right. How do you feel that your position as a as an emergency and critical care doc contributes to the overall function and mission of uh, the department and the residency that you you work in? Uh, well, it probably depends who you ask. Um, <laughs> not everyone in the department agrees with what at least I'm specifically have have tried to do. And we'll get more, you know, and that's basically talking about, you know, the ED ICU, which which we'll talk about later. But I feel that our mission as physicians is to do what's best for the patient, no matter where they may be. Some people feel that there's some things that are hospital wide or that are hospital problems that the hospital should solve, and there are problems that we need to tackle because they're things that are on are in our wheelhouse. My process, my thought process is what's best for the patient. Maybe it's a problem that's a hospital problem that maybe they're not doing enough to fix. Maybe they're doing everything they can to fix and it's still a problem. But for me, the one thing is what's best for the patient in the long term from their, from time zero till their discharge. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. It sounds like you have a, a foot in both worlds. Yeah. And how does that, you kind of touched on it, but how does that unique role affect the way that, you know, critical care delivery occurs uh, in the hospital Mm -hmm. uh, functioning overall? So earlier the better. That's basically what it comes down to. So when I have a critical care patient, I am treating them the exact same if they're in my unit versus they're in the ED. To me, it's a location is just a location. So if they come in needing something that I can provide, I'm I'm gonna provide it no matter where I'm at. I'm just gonna start everything I can start when they need it, no matter where they're at. And how does that affect your presence in the in the hospital with other departments and uh, committees? You're having a foot in both worlds. How does that? Uh, allow you to function in between. Yeah, so so I think it, it's very helpful. So I did my fellowship training through anesthesia. So I I was chief fellow for my year. Uh, I was the only EM person, and so I and I would moonlight in on the weekends down in the emergency department as a clinical instructor as an attending. And so from the start, I had my foot in both doors. And it was extremely helpful because when I was upstairs rounding in the ICUs, I got to know the surgical residents, the surgical attendings, the fellows, got to know the, you know, the the neurology, the neurosurgery, the cardiac surgeons by name. You know, I had that presence. And so my, my face recognition was there with my name recognition. So when I would call from downstairs, it was a totally different conversation than maybe the resident or other attendings calling because I don't care how long you've been where you're at. If you're always downstairs and you're only a voice on the phone, that relationship is never going to be the same as if you have worked alongside that person and also getting on different committees has been helpful for that exact same reason. So I have found it has been so helpful for just my everyday life, working with different specialties and physicians. And I, I feel like my, you know, when I can, when I call someone on the phone, they'll, they'll, they won't give me a problem. They'll, 
they'll take it for what it's worth. Um, they trust me for what I, you know, they trust my word. So it's been just extremely helpful and it's helped advance my career as well, just because I've been able to, you know, sit on committees and have that extra presence. Um, so it's, it's been so helpful. It seems like it would be an asset to oh, yeah. the emergency, the department, uh, to have critical care physicians on staff. It does because we, you know, we're constantly in other places in the hospital. We now have three EM, CCM physicians who practice at UAB downstairs and upstairs. Two of us are within the emergency department and one is in the um, pulmonary department. And two of us are EM, IM as well. And so we're always somewhere else or always somewhere in the hospital where we can be seen. And it's, you know, we, we can take our, you know, for me specifically, I work within the Department of Anesthesia as my second, kind of my second home with critical care. And so I know all those guys, I kind of know, you know, certain goings on with the anesthesia department that my other EM colleagues wouldn't know. My two colleagues who work with the MICU and pulmonary department, they know some other goings on with the pulmonary department, and it really can help just your everyday life and, and your interactions. And it seems with the the committee positions and stuff you mentioned that uh, it would really help facilitate kind of the way that the delivery of critical care functions in the hospital as a whole Yeah, instead of being segmented. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so you know, what I would really love, which a few places have done, is really integrate their critical care departments instead of being segmented into anesthesia or medicine or surgery or EM now, just have one critical care department and everyone really working together. Now, granted, you still may work in a specific ICU, but the places that have done that have had a lot of success and and it's it's actually been great for their fellowship programs too. So that that's what I hope we can get to at some point. I don't know if that'll ever happen. Right. You know, at UAB, but but it has it's really helped uh, relationships and 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 delivery of critical care because you know with the opening of the EDSU, which we'll get to, you know, na- you know after that was open for a while, you know, before coronavirus shut it down, uh, you know, that was becoming an expected, well, did you call the EDICU people? Right. You know, so it really quickly kind of added another level of critical care delivery in the institution, which was really helpful. So you've mentioned the EDICU concept a few times, and it's something I also find uh, very exciting and uh, lots of implications for the future of the specialty. What Mm -hmm innovations and practice changes along that line are, are creating opportunities for EM critical care docs, and, and how do you see that affecting the future of, of your specialty? Yeah, so um, the concept of the EDICU really gives the EM, CCM physician kind of more of a stronghold in their niche. So it gives them a physical place or service to give, as opposed to just being an EM doc who also did critical care, who can bring some of those training elements down into the emergency department, maybe starting some things a little sooner or whatever, having more educational opportunities for the residents. It really brings something more solid and tangible that they can own and improve critical care in their institution in their own house. So they don't necessarily have to go to another department to do critical care. They can do it all within their own house and really change the trajectory of some of these patients, mostly for the better, you know. Um, And so I think that in and itself, though, that type of um, uh, unit or critical care consult service or whatever you have at your shop really just gives the EMCCM physician that something that they own. And kind of briefly, uh, because it is a, a fairly new concept, uh, mm-hmm. what what is the role of an EDICU? What is it accomplishing? Yeah, so it really depends on where you are. Each institution has their own needs that 
so it's kind of it's good and it's bad because there's no two EDICUs, whatever you want to call them. Everyone has maybe a little, you know, catchy name for theirs. We don't. Um, that's just because I couldn't think of one. But everyone has different needs at their institutions. So therefore, two are never the same, which is good because you can make it what you need it to be. But it's bad because there's no easy, quick blueprint for, you know, here's how you do it. So each institution's different in their in the structure of their administration and uh, and also in their needs. So it really depends on where you're at. You know, there's several examples I can give, but there's certain ICUs. Uh, for example, Maryland, University of Maryland has one. It's not in the emergency department. It's actually an inpatient unit, but it's run by the kind of uh, EM ICU guys, I believe. And they, what they do is they take transfers from outside hospitals. Instead of going through the emergency room, they'll go right to this critical care unit where they can continue their stabilization, figure out exactly what they may need, and maybe get them, you know, to the surgical service or to the OR that they need, or just instead of kind of using their their um, their emergency room for that purpose. And then you have University of Michigan, which is in some ways kind of the gold standard because it's truly an independent ICU in the emergency room. They've got several beds, resuscitation, resuscitation bays, they've got, um, you know, a lot of infrastructure uh, to do that, which is, may not be able to be replicated in other places simply because of their circumstances. But then you have a place like Stony Brook, where Scott Weingart is, where it's kind of like an EDICU, but it's, they call it the RAC, R-A-C-C, I forgot what it stands for, but they have kind of a mixed unit. Lots of beds, half of them are for high acuity ED patients right from the door. The other half are kind of there for longer and kind of start some critical care stuff, but not quite in ICU. I think more focused on kind of early aggressive resuscitation. They may stay there for some time. I'm not sure they're they're time frame that they're down in the emergency department. Then ours is kind of a hybrid of different things. You know, we have the ED critical care service where we'll do critical care consults for kind of all critical care patients in the ED when we're there in-house. And then we have a, a small ED ICU where our focus was these short-stay ICU patients who aren't going to need a lot, uh, are not, are not going to need more than really 24 hours of ICU DKA and some of these overdoses that need airway monitoring or who need to be intubated just for overnight or COPD on BiPAP, CHF on BiPAP, think, things of that nature that typically require very short turnaround. And our issue was we had a lot of boarding in the emergency room and we wanted to try to take the ICU patients out of that equation and get them right from the ER to the EDICU to the floor or discharge. And so we had to focus on the needs of our institution, and we were able to kind of get that uh, up and running, and, and it's been extremely successful. And because we knew what the needs were, and so we really tailored it to those needs. I know it was not at all uncommon uh, when I was bringing some of those transfers, those critical care transfers uh, to UAB uh, for their to be a days long wait to to get an ICU bed, so it seems like it really fills a role. Yeah, uh, in terms of like you said, dealing with boarding and facilitating movement through the through the center, especially right. tertiary centers. Yeah, it's helped. It's helped us. I mean, I felt it's helped a lot. You know, it was only open for seven months before Corona started, and just because of how how it was where we were housed in the emergency room, we couldn't cohort patients. So we had to close it down for, you know, needing more space, more, more, um, it just wasn't safe to keep it open at that time. So, but, you know, it was only open seven months and, you know, we had for only two beds we had available, you know, we, we saved, you know, 90 patients who would have otherwise gone to the ICU. They didn't. And that, that was very helpful. And it really offloaded some of our ICUs which just made the bed availability better for those really sicker patients who really needed long critical care stays. Right. Really filling the, the gap and making sure that people are getting the treatment. Exactly. Because otherwise, you know, you know, a lot of times people are sitting downstairs and waiting for their ICU bed. And, you know, the ICU, the upstairs team, just based on what they had going on in their units. We had some policies originally where, you know, we, we they were just not getting the 
attention they needed. You know, we would, you know, we would take care of what what they needed. You know, they need pressers. We put on pressers. We give them lines. You know, the 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 ER the EM physicians. You know, were great at doing that. But there was just those other things that we weren't equipped to do. Um, you know, as you know, EM physicians versus the critical care physicians. So it, it did it did fill a void, which was helpful in my mind for patient care. So for our listeners who are uh, medical students or emergency medicine residents that are interested in this career, I know that. People are going to have questions about what the lifestyle is like and where you practice. Um, so where do where do critical care EM docs typically end up after fellowship? So the information I could find was somewhat outdated. Most are in academics. I think that's probably safe to say. From the information I found, at least 65% were in academics. And that just makes sense, it seems. And some are in the community, maybe 20% or so. Now, in terms of lifestyle, you know, when I'm in the, take away the EDICU, because the EDICU adds kind of a, another complex layer of, of kind of scheduling, which I can talk about after. But from a typical, when I'm doing, so I split my time. In terms of time-wise, it's about 50-50. In terms of FTEs, it's closer to 60-40 EM critical care. But I do uh, nine shifts a month, eight-hour shifts a month in the emergency department, and I do one full week of ICU, which is seven days on 24-7 and 24-7 call. So when I'm, the, when I'm in the emergency department, it's typical emergency department shifts. I'm either the morning shift, the afternoon shift, or the night shift. And it's, you know, pretty typical. Nothing, nothing out of the ordinary except when I'm doing EDICU as well, which I'll talk about after. In terms of my ICU days, you know, for me, my rounds start at 8.30. I'll get there early, kind of do some chart reviews. And I round, since I'm since it's not a, like a 7A to 7P shift, I round, do what I have to do, stick around for a while, usually out by the afternoon. For me, for my specific unit that I round in, I still am on call. I mean, we have nurse practitioners and uh, fellows who are there at night or residents who are there at night. And uh, so they'll call me with issues and I'll some, you know, sometimes have to go in and either do a procedure or see someone who's just really sick and they need help with X, Y, or Z. So however, we have the MICU in our places is now shifts from, um, you know, they do 7A to 7P and 7P to 7A. So that's more of, uh, and that's, it just depends where you're at, how, how it is. Community shops will be closer to what I do as, as opposed to academic shops. A lot will be will be shifts. And so if I did 7A to 7P, it would just be I was there like a shift. you know. So it, it's pretty typical just rounding ICU stuff. Now, when you add my EDICU responsibilities on that, when, I am in the, when I'm on call for the EDICU, generally I'm in the ED that day at some point. And then I'm, if I go home, I'm on call and I'll take new admissions for the EDICU, put them back there. We have a set of protocols for each individual diagnosis that I can implement and will see the patient either that night if they need or the next morning. And so that's where it's a little different from my typical EM shift where I'll go home and still be on call, which is, I don't love being on call, but it's something I feel that I want to do and make available for our department. So it's something that me and my colleagues just deal with. And typically it's not, not so bad. You know, we're not, and part of the reason we're focusing on these short stay, kind of the less critical, critically ill patients is because we don't have the infrastructure to have someone there 24 seven. If we did, we would be able to open it up to kind of all ICU comers, which we're hoping we will get there in the future, but it's just so early that we're just not there yet. And you mentioned your dual appointments with the Department of Emergency Medicine and, and anesthesiology. Could you explain how that dynamic works for the average EM critical care doc? Yeah. So again, this is another thing that's very institution dependent. There are some places where you will be part of the critical care department, 
which whatever specialty you you are in for you know either anesthesia or surgery which is less common uh, neuro because some, a lot of EM physicians do neurocritical care primarily and or uh, or medicine and so some places you are owned by one of those places and then you do EM shifts for me it's the opposite I'm owned by the emergency department and I it's almost like I'm rented by anesthesia from the emergency department but since I'm primarily emergency emergency medicine in my appointment my vacation days come from emergency medicine my PRA my sick leave my requirements for attending faculty meetings and going through promotion and all those are through the emergency department so again it's very institution dependent it would in places that have ha- have done this already in terms of figuring out the money stuff and this percent FTEM this percent FTE you know critical care it's it's generally you know if it's been done once they kind of have a, a framework to do it if you're going at up to a place that's never done it before it can get a little difficult in terms of trying to figure some of that stuff out especially with scheduling so for me it works out great so my ICU schedule is generally made several months ahead of time and so I'll know my the weeks I'm doing ICU and then I just put in my request for the for my emergency shifts and generally it's worked out very well in terms of major holidays those are generally worked on the EM side and I all I did in some places may not be this easy I just told my anesthesia colleagues and you know department leaders I said you know I am I have to do these major holidays as my requirement for emergency medicine so most likely I'm not going to be working the major holidays for you guys but I'll work a lot of the minor holidays Memorial Day Labor Day things like that and it's worked out really well I haven't had major scheduling issues but that that may not be the case everywhere so it's very just institution dependent and how you decide to set it up but those are things that you do need to think about because I probably do work more holidays than my EM colleagues just know that when if you do decide to do this and you're looking for a job that's something you should be asking about because I had no idea I just kind of I don't know I learned a lot of the stuff on the fly uh, but there are there you know as of late there are a lot more there's a lot more attention being paid to EM critical care and a lot more resources available through like SCCM and ASEP and things of that nature that have either if it's SCCM they have an EM path or group and then if it's ASEP they have a critical care group uh, within those so it's a lot more people to kind of uh, more of a sounding board and, and get advice from. And I should mention here, since uh, this is AAM right. RSA, there's a there's a good uh, critical care committee too that has uh, I think they have a, a list served and uh, send out interesting uh, discussions. Yeah, and, and I didn't mean to take anything away from AAM, no. <laughs> but I was just spouting out just first thing that came to my head. So <laughs> no, just pointing people to the to the yeah. resources where they are. But so you've sold me on critical care. I want to bring that uh, ICU care to the emergency department. So how do I get there? If I'm a med student or a resident, um, what are the steps? What are the different options? I would say, number one, be a good student. Do, you know, show up on time, be engaged, show that you want to be there in any rotation you're doing. Because one, you know, if you get a letter from a rotation that's negative, even though you didn't like it, you don't want to be there, you know that that that's gonna be neg- that's gonna ha- shine a negative light on you. So just just be a good student from number one. Just that that's my best piece of advice I could give. Show up early, do the work, be engaged, don't leave early. In terms of what you should do specifically for to maybe get a leg up, I was just just get involved early as you can. Show interest if you know you have time in between. You know first and second year try to get maybe maybe getting involved in one of the departments in terms of you know helping with research or doing something else that that maybe is a need um just showing that you have an interest and that that you're you're trying to do something i think that that probably goes a long way um it's not completely necessary if you need that 
summer to just you know decompress because that's a hard year i mean that's okay too um but just getting involved early so in med school they have different clubs you know the em club and maybe there's a critical care club i don't know they didn't i don't think they had one where i was but getting involved like that volunteering just just easy stuff that that looks good on a cv i think i think will go a long way it's not i mean again the number one thing is be a good student be a good resident those are the things that really are going to help you out the most in getting good letters because of those things but but being involved helps and you you mentioned that you did your critical care fellowship training through anesthesia mm-hmm. uh, what are the different routes and why did you choose anesthesia so again my path was a little unconventional so i i did med- medical school at an osteopathic school and before the joint match and joint pathway the there were different requirements so on the allopathic side if you did emergency or internal medicine you had or EMIM even you still had to do two years of critical care to get boarded on the osteopathic side if you did EMIM you only had to do one year of critical care to get boarded so when I was looking I I did go through the match for the medicine side. The anesthesia critical care programs weren't going through the match yet. And so really what I'd, I cold called places. There weren't as many resources as there are now. On Scott Weingart's page, there was a link to a list of programs that accepted EM physicians. And I literally just went down the list and called. And I think the last one on the list was UAB. And it wasn't even listed as the right person. But it, it happened to be... Uh, Henry Wang, who he was the vice chair of research at the time, he just got me in touch with who I needed to get in touch with. And it was a phone call. It was come for an interview. I got the phone call saying, hey, do you want to come? It was actually I was in the ICU that night on call in residency um, dealing with a a difficult patient. And um, I got the call saying, hey, you want to come? And this was before I had done any interviews yet through the match, through the internal medicine side. And I just said, yeah, because why do two years when you can do one? So there are different ways to do it. There's the anesthesia way, which you still have to do two years. And the places who accept EM physicians accommodate that because anesthesiologists just need one year. So you just do two years. And typically how it works is you just do the rotations. So you do all the rotations kind of again. So you just get more time in, in the specific units with the option, of course, doing more electives in you know medical side because most anesthesia places are really going to focus on the surgical critical care. Surgical critical care, neurocritical care, you know, cardiovascular ICU stuff. Uh, but you can do... Um, you can do rotations uh, through the medical ICU and things of that nature to get get those hours in. And then there's the, you can go through surgery, which very few people do because the first six months or so, and maybe it's even the first year, you actually act more like a surgical intern, and which no one wants to do. Um, Surgical interns don't want to do it. So (laughs) it's probably the least desirable path. But it is a path if, if you if you want to go down that path. Um, and then there's, of course, the medicine side, which is very is going to be very medicine heavy. However, there's some couple programs that I know of in the country that are very integrated. So EM guys are going to do the same number of months of surgical ICU as the anesthesia guys and the same number of months as the medic in the medical ICU as the medicine guys and, and et cetera. So that those are those are um, great programs because you get very involved in all the units and get a lot of exposure because at the end of the day you're taking the same boards. So the medical ICU fellows don't rotate in our neuro ICU. So they don't get like training on EVDs and other different things that 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 they may that you'll see in the neuro ICU, but you still got to know that stuff on the board. So it's something important to know that which path you're going to go down and what exposures you're going to have. For me, I had that medicine training, so I thought, well, I've never really done the surgical ICU and neuro ICU, so 
I'm okay with focusing on that because I have that extra medicine training. So I think that worked out pretty well for me. In retrospect, I wish maybe I had a couple more months of you know medical ICU where I could focus on a few more things. But overall, it worked out well for me. But that's something to consider when you're deciding which path to go down. So some people just want to do surgical ICU or neuro ICU, and that's that's great. If you know that early on, that's great. But if you don't know and want to get a good exposure, just make sure you kind of know what you're getting into when you're going to that specific fellowship and what rotations you're going to do. So you touched on evaluating the curriculum of of the different Mm -hmm. routes and even between programs of the same route. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is there anything else that you would uh, recommend applicants look for when evaluating a prospective critical care fellowship? Of course, looking to figure out, you know, their didactics and, and how involved have the, you know, are the attendings and, and, you know, if you have research interests, what are research uh, requirements, you know, the call requirements. You know, for me, I, it was an interesting type of setup. You know, we didn't do the daily critical care notes. We weren't on call overnight. So it was kind of in, in one way nice because, you know, I had done five years of that already. I didn't, I wasn't looking to do more of that. And so, but it, it doesn't mean it was a, it would have been a bad thing to do. So just kind of knowing some of those ins and outs, ins and outs, just like a regular residency, knowing, you know, what your call schedule is, uh, stuff like that. The other thing is looking, asking about, you know, board pass rates. That's pretty important. If you're going to go to a program that historically has passed less than 50% of their applicants on the first try at boards, well, maybe that's a red flag and maybe you should consider looking elsewhere. So, but honestly, going to a place that, you know, you feel comfortable with the people and the environment and the location, you know, you you still have to live your life. So it it just, I mean, some of it's common sense, what feels right and what doesn't, but the best advice I could give. How competitive is it for EM-trained applicants to these critical care fellowships versus IM or anesthesia? Is there a difference? I don't know, to be honest with you. And I couldn't find information to help me with that. I looked on trying to find, you know, where people matched and whatnot. But I think as as time goes by, I think... Depending on the, the place, some places do not want EM physicians in their programs. And they'll make, and they, there's plenty of resources to show you which programs won't. And programs will tell you we do not accept EM physicians. So, but the ones that do typically will, in my experience, not really care. So, when we have EM physicians who come and interview for our fellowship through anesthesia, no one's looking at them and saying, well, they're EM, I don't know. It's, are they good applicants or not? Are they going to be a good critical care doctor? Now, the only downside is, for anesthesia specifically, is having that two-year time frame versus one. So the anesthesia critical care program just has to figure that out on their end, is well, how many EM physicians can we have if, if those are two-year programs and, and what. I was the first EM person through the anesthesia fellowship, but again, my situation was different. I only needed one year. But since that time, you know, we've had an EM person pretty regularly within the anesthesia fellowship. Um, we don't currently, but it, it was becoming more regular. So I think overall, it's probably if you are just a good candidate, it's not going to matter. Right. So if I am an interested EM resident, uh, when should I start to apply to these programs? How is it something I need to be thinking about from day one of residency, or is it do you have time? So, EM residencies now have these tracks where you'll have an interest. You know, you have to you have to pick a track at some point in your first year: ultrasound or tox or EMS. Um, some places have critical care tracks. So, if you have an interest and you can pick that track, that's great. Sometimes your interest doesn't, you don't figure out your interest for a while. I mean, that's totally normal. It's a three-year residency most mostly. Um, it's just like medical school. You have to figure out what you want to do for the rest of your life with almost in almost no time. And right. so <laughs> things change, your interests change. 
The earlier the better, of course, is knowing when you want to do it because then you can focus on those things, maybe getting involved in critical care research or doing extra extra IC rotations for your electives, things of that nature. Generally, you're going to start applying, I think you apply late second year, early third year through the match for fellowships. So knowing at least in your second year to make sure you get you know, the letters you need and those things under your belt is, is good. But if, if you don't decide till late, the good thing about EM is you can always get a job for a year. You can do locums and make, you know, and make your decision a year later. Now, of course, it's always easier to go right from training to training as opposed to taking a year off. You know, you see that paycheck come in and you're like, man, I don't want to give that up for, you know, this was nice having some money for once. <laughs> um, and the schedule is much better being a, attending than a resident. So it's always better, in my opinion, to go from training to training. But the good thing about EM is you've got that flexibility. You know, you can take a year. People go to, shoot, New Zealand for a year and practice EM through locums. And then, you know, but we've had people in our program who one guy was was an EM physician for 25 years in private practice. Wow. And he's like, I'm done with this. I'm burnt out. I'm going to do critical care. He ended up doing neurocritical care. So he did three years of critical care at UAB. Um, and he ended up opening a, a neuro ICU in his, where he was an EM physician in, in where he was from. So um, it can be done in a multitude of different ways. But the earlier you know, probably the better. So we've talked about some really cool concepts of you know the EDICU and uh, bringing that care downstairs. And uh, emergency medicine in particular has a long history of uh, being at the forefront of that sort of innovation. Uh, where do you see the future of uh, emergency medicine critical care? I and mean, what are your thoughts on that? The field is only going to get bigger because people are continuing to do fellowships. Um, so I think our presence in the institutions that we work in will, of course, grow, therefore increasing our ability to make those innovative changes. So with the concept of the EDICU, I think that's only going to grow and hopefully at some point become a standard part of an academic center and we will have more presence on hospital committees and in hospital-wide administration and big national organizations like AAM or SAM or whatever it may be will have more voice at the table. So it, it's just going to keep growing. There's always a need for intensivists. There's always a need for EM docs. So our skills are always going to be sought after. So job security is, is job security, in, in my opinion, is paramount. Right, uh, especially with the coronavirus that we're all still living through. By the way, we are social distancing. So you know, a lot of you know their hospitals closed during this pandemic. ER physicians in the community lost hours, which is if you don't work the hours, you don't get the pay. So we were lucky enough. At our institution where, you know, we're salaried employees by the hospital, so we didn't necessarily lose hours. Now, we had some salary cuts, but that was institution-wide. So, but we had, you know, our jobs were secure. And, you know, if you have that backup of having another specialty that you can fall back on, so I moonlight in a surgical ICU at the VA in Birmingham, you know, my EM colleagues can't do that. So I've got that extra kind of buffer to have some more job security because I thought we would always have jobs. You know, people do stupid stuff. So, you know, <laughs> EM docs will always have job security as well as intensivists. But, you know, this pandemic really highlighted the fact that we're all vulnerable to issues like this. And so having that extra training and having that niche really makes you a little safer, in my opinion, than the standard EM doc would. What was it like to uh, be working both in the emergency department and the ICU during this uh, recent pandemic and all of the changes that 
came about because of it. Yeah, so the big thing was we had different different protocols. Like protocols changed daily in terms of who you're going to test, who you're not going to test. We have these tests, we don't have these tests. This is considered a person who may have coronavirus, but this one's not. We're going to not use our stethoscopes or something. I mean, just it was just no matter where you worked in the institution, you felt it. The unit I work in was not we was not designated as a COVID unit. So we did not get the COVID patients. Although just because this is how things work, I think there were a couple patients who fell through the cracks who ended up in our unit. But we didn't have a whole unit of just ventilated patients from COVID. So my ICU time was, you know, still stressful because trying to figure out just because they tested negative, are they really negative? It seems like maybe they're positive. So having to go through the whole thing of, no, let's let's put them under investigation. Let's put all the stuff on every time we go in until we know for sure we're going to test them again. So the whole thing has just been really stressful. It's more stressful early on because everyone was really scared and not really knowing yet how it was transmitted. Was it airborne or droplet? I mean, there's still so many things we don't know about it. I think everyone's gotten into more of a routine and it's somewhat become our new normal, so we're a little more comfortable. Um, but it's been, it was, you know, it's definitely harder to be at work now than it used to be. Just wearing the mask, communicating with patients, not having their loved ones be able to be there, that's been difficult for sure. Do you feel like you're... <laughs> background uh, being in both worlds of emergency medicine and critical care has had an impact on how your institution or department has approached uh, the care of these patients during a pandemic like this? So, yes, because I have a seat at the table in, in both worlds. So when this all started, we were having really frequent faculty meetings via Zoom on both ends, the emergency side and the and my anesthesia critical care division. And so I could give each department the perspective of the other department and bring some things to light that maybe they weren't thinking about. In that way, it's been extremely helpful. I was also able to be on a committee to help with some resource allocation decisions that if we needed to have some resource allocation discussions, we would have a framework to do that. So I was able to be on that committee and help give a voice from the emergency as well as the critical care side. So that actually was very helpful. Well, Dr. Kessler, I really appreciate you being here today. This is a, a topic I could probably talk to you about all day. It's very interesting and there's uh, so much uh, in the future that I think critical care and emergency medicine are going to continue to advance. But is there anything that you wish you would have known about this path prior to uh, going down down it or any final thoughts or words of advice for listeners? I probably wished I would have known it existed sooner. Um, I may have decided to do things a little differently in my, you know, my, my path. I'm a strong believer that everything happens for a reason and you don't always know what that reason is. For example, me not matching twice, you know, that's, that is the lowest I've ever felt in my life. And I had to do it. I had to feel that twice. And, you know, you didn't know, I didn't know why. And, but I, I, I was, I was a true believer that everything happens for a reason. I still am. So I just wish I would have known earlier, probably would have helped me out with, with, uh, feeling less horrible <laughs> those two times. But the last thing I really want to say is, you know, EM and critical care are both great fields. If you're wanting to do EM and you're even thinking about critical care, look into it. It's very fulfilling. I feel very lucky to be able to do both and lucky to do it in a place that I'm doing it that that res that shows me the level of, of, of respect as an EM physician in the critical care world. And if you're thinking about doing it, there, there are some naysayers who say, you know, that two years of extra training is two years of attending pay that you'll never get back. I don't buy it. If you're happy in your career, it's worth it. I was not any more in the hole, really, than I would have been. But my 
level of career satisfaction is great because I always know I've got that other thing to fall back on. If I want to focus on critical care and stop doing EM, I can always do that, and I can always pick up EM shifts later if I decide I want to do more EM. It just makes my life, it, it gives me a lot more choices for my future, and it, it, it truly is a, a great career path. So if you're thinking about it, really think about it. It's very fulfilling, and I would recommend it to everyone. Well, thank you again. I think uh, the listeners really can come away with a good understanding of uh, what the unique species of the EM critical care doc is and and how to get there. Um, I would say to check out the AAM critical care committee. Uh, There are some great resources and mentors that uh, you can plug into and get a better idea of the field and, and how to get there if you're interested. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about AEM RSA, visit the website at www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.